Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say... This is what the Sovereign Lord says, although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, So it's uh, been nearly... Two years ago, and I was uh, in a season of just disappointment and, and difficulty. There were circumstances uh, surrounding me that were outside of my control, and I had spent a season like trying to figure things out on my own, trying to make things that felt wrong right, and just trying to control uh, what was going on around me. And in the midst of this disappointment, there was a night that I was laying in bed and uh, was tossing and turning for what must have been four hours, just wide awake, trying to figure out how to, how to make things right, how to take these things that were broken and, and make them right again, and was just struggling. And my wife was trying to sleep next to me, and at about two in the morning, she finally woke up and rolled over and asked, are you okay? And when she asked that question, it's like the floodgates opened. In the past, I would tell her, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, I'm fine. I, like, I've got this. But that night, she asked the question, are you okay? And I couldn't even get out. No, I'm not. And instead, what came out was, I can't do this anymore. And just like ugly crying at two o'clock in the morning. I can't do this anymore. I don't, I don't know what else to do. And if you've been re- reading Ezekiel this week, right, that's what Ezekiel feels like, right? Israel's kind of in this same place. A, a couple of weeks ago, John preached on uh, the prophet I, uh, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's prophesying uh, to Judah, to the Israelites, about their eventual exile. They've been disobedient to God, and they're going to be exiled. There is judgment and destruction coming. And Ezekiel's telling the same story from a different perspective. And as I was thinking of that example of getting to the end of myself and crying out, God, I don't know what else to do. I can't do this anymore. 
And I was thinking about the similarities between my story and Ezekiel's story. What I really wanted to focus on were the differences, right? The Israel story, what Israel was going through was a result of their own sin and their own disobedience. And that wasn't really the story in my case. But the more I wrestled with this over this week, the more I realized my story and my sin and Israel's sin, like there's more in common than I'd like to admit. I said, John preached a couple of weeks ago. He preached two weeks on Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is just a difficult book. I mean, it is. It's a book about judgment and about exile. And then last week, we opened the book of Lamentations, right? Lamentations isn't much cheerier. In fact, it's the opposite. And then this week, we're in Ezekiel, and we're going to spend another week in Ezekiel. And I don't know if you've been reading along, like, throughout this journey through the Bible that we're doing together, but as we're reading through these prophets, if you're like me, you're thinking, can we please just get to the New Testament, right? This is brutal. And it's interesting, too, because this is, like, the last two sermons I get to share with you guys. Who chooses Ezekiel, like, as they're, like, going away sermons? Well, here's the thing, you don't. They get assigned to you. It's just where we are in the journey. But I was sitting last week as we were going through Lamentations, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, we're doing Lamentations. We just did Jeremiah. And I knew we're jumping into Ezekiel that doesn't get much better. And and as I was sitting there, I was thinking, as much as I want to get to hope and renewal and resurrection, right, there's something about living here for a bit, Something about living with Jeremiah and with Lamentations and with Ezekiel to get the weight of what's going on. Because Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is in Jerusalem and he's preaching to the the people of Judah who are still living in Jerusalem, right? The, The destruction of the temple and the Babylonians haven't completely invaded and overthrown Jerusalem yet. And so Jeremiah is preaching and prophesying from within the city. And at the same time, we've got Ezekiel, who was one of the first exiles out of Jerusalem into Babylon, is preaching really the same message in Babylon. And while Jeremiah is preaching to the the remnant of Jerusalem that haven't been exiled yet, uh, Ezekiel's preaching to, to those that have already been exiled. They're living in Babylon. And He's preaching to these people that have this false sense of hope that Jerusalem hasn't been overthrown yet. And surely God's not going to allow that to happen, right? And surely God's not going to allow, I know the prophecy has been telling us this for many, many years, but surely God's not going to allow the temple to be destroyed. Surely our exile is going to be short-lived. And Ezekiel's got this like great message of no, Buckle in. You're going to be here for a while because there's no repentance taking place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be overthrown and all of them will be exiled and the temple will be destroyed. There's two halves to Ezekiel. There's the first half that we're tackling this week. And then the second half like does get to some life and hope. And if you've studied Ezekiel at all, there's probably one chapter that you've studied. And it's the chapter of, it's one of the chapters of hope. But I want us to rest in the first chapters this morning because I think it's important for us to feel the weight of what's going on. This news about exile 
for those that have already been exiled, like that this exile is going to last a while and Jerusalem is going to get destroyed and the temple is going to get destroyed as well, wasn't just about them being like moved to a foreign land. This is far more devastating for the Israelites because it wasn't just you're not in your homeland anymore. Exile was the undoing of all of the promises God had made to his people in the Old Testament. At least that's the way they perceived it, right? The promises of God that we've been reading about throughout the Old Testament, beginning all the way back with Abraham, there's basically essentially four promises God made to his people. The first is that they would be God's people. That Israel was God's chosen covenant people. That God would be their God. That God would protect them and their welfare. The second one was that God had granted them this land. And so the idea of a foreign nation coming in and overthrowing them broke what seemed like the first promise as well as the second promise in the sense of that exile. God had promised to his people through the Davidic uh, promises that one of David's descendants would, would be sitting on the throne over Jerusalem. And with the Babylonians coming in and overthrowing Jerusalem, that promise looked like it was unfulfilled and undone as well. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, was God's presence in the temple. This wasn't just about, gosh, we're living someplace that's unfamiliar. And it wasn't just about we're living under somebody else's rule. What it meant was we're no longer living under God's rule. We're no longer in the place that God had promised us. And there was the sense that God is not present with us any longer. As we've been going through the story, those are the four promises that Israel has been living with. But there's another side of that covenant as well, and that is Israel's side of the covenant, right? It wasn't just, I will be your God, but the promise to Israel was that you will be my people. Israel had this responsibility on their side to to protect their fidelity to God. It's commandment number one, right? Do not put any other gods before me. But Israel had become idolatrous, not just worshiping foreign gods, but there were foreign gods in the temple itself, the place that God was to reside. It's not like Israel was doing this on the side. They were doing it in the temple itself. It's like they were hedging their bets with God, right? In case God doesn't come through, we've got these other gods that we're also going to worship, you know, just in case. And like I said, I want to think that my sins and my circumstances are different for Israel's, but I do this as well. And I may not have foreign gods to fertility and those sorts of things, but I place my hope in places other than God himself. The Israelites were to observe the moral and ethical laws of God. This was one of the ways that they were to, to differentiate themselves from the other nations around them in order that they might stand as a witness to who their God was. And generation by generation, these laws and these ethics and this morality was done away with so that Israel began to look more and more like the foreign nations that surrounded them. And the last and maybe the most important differentiator of Israel from the other nations was that their leaders were to be just leaders. And while the leaders of all the nations surrounding Israel tended to be oppressive and even perpetrators against their own people, Israel was to be a witness to the goodness of their God 
because their kings and their leaders were to be just. But the leaders of Israel, beginning with the northern kingdom, right, and even the oppressiveness of the rulers is what led to the split of Israel in the first place into the northern and the southern kingdom. The leaders of Israel had become oppressive as well and even violent to their own people. The thing that was to be primary about differentiating them and being a witness to the other nations was no longer true. As we open Jeremiah and Ezekiel and we're reading through this, we begin to sense that the prophets are speaking against the prevailing theology of the day. The prevailing theology focused only on God's promises but ignored Israel's responsibility. Focused only on God's promises but ignored Israel's responsibility. The promises of God were emphasized while their obligations were discounted. Surely God will fill in the blank. There was this sense of spiritual pride and arrogance for the Israelites. And not only that, but Israel and Judah in particular, in this case, had settled and forgotten who they could be. Uh, Micah Riddle, who, Steph, how old's Micah? Six, seven, uh, prayed for the kids this morning. It was a beautiful prayer because his prayer was remember. Remember the goodness of God was essentially his prayer. And this is the message of the prophets over and over again. Remember, remember. And Israel had forgotten not only who their God was, but they had forgotten who they could be as well. As I was reading through Ezekiel, I was thinking about the idea of exile. It began to occur to me that that in exile, God is releasing Israel to the very thing that Israel has been asking for over and over and over again. You're going to bring the foreign gods into my temple. You want to be like the other nations? Here you go. You're going to be in the other nations. They've chosen their fate to some degree. You want to worship foreign gods? I'm going to allow you to worship foreign gods. You don't want to live under rule and you want injustice? This is what that experience feels like. This reading Ezekiel, like there's just, there's so much judgment in it, right? And there's so much conviction. And, and yet, I, I know and I believe that God's primary character is love. And, and how do I hold these two things together? God's conviction and his judgment, but God's, like his very core, his very character is one of love. And so it, it caused me to begin to wrestle with, is it possible is it possible that conviction and judgment can be an act of love? That God's conviction and judgment in this case is, is really an act of love because love is his character. John touched on this uh, about three weeks ago when he was preaching the first sermon on, on Jeremiah and talking about exile and the significance of that and the significance of God's discipline in our lives. And if you're wrestling with this, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. But the other option for God in this case is to allow Israel to continue to follow their own way and to abandon him without consequence, which is ultimately going to lead to Israel's destruction. And so God steps in in an act of love, convicting them of their sin. I had this all written yesterday and uh, found, as I was going through Twitter uh, yesterday afternoon, Tim Keller had tweeted this, and I thought, I have to include this because it fits so perfectly. 
Tim Keller says, no one ever learned about his or, his or her sins by being told. We have too many layers of self-justification to grow without hard knocks. This is so true in my own life. No one ever learned about his or her own sins by being told. We have, we have too many layers of self-justification to grow without hard knocks. And so in the biblical stories we've been reading, I mean, the beauty of reading the Bible from cover to cover is that we catch the story. And there's themes throughout the story that show up over and over and over again. And one of the themes that we see as we've gone throughout the Old Testament, we'll see it through the New Testament, and we see it in the Bible as a whole, is that judgment and grace always go hand in hand. Judgment and grace always go hand in hand. And exile and deliverance are always connected as well. Judgment and grace, hand in hand. Exile and deliverance always go together. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden disobey God and they're sent out. And that's how the story begins. But the story ends in Revelation with the renewal of all things. Eden is ultimately restored. Exile and deliverance go hand in hand. Judgment and grace. The Tower of Babel is just the same story as Adam and Eve all over again, right? The people gather together and say, we're going to make ourselves like God. That is not where they're supposed to live. And so God comes down and confuses their language as an act of conviction and judgment. But in Acts 2, when we get there, God's going to restore that with the giving of the Holy Spirit and reunify, undo the judgment that takes place in the Tower of Babel. Exile and deliverance go hand in hand. Egypt, they, the Israelites end up in Egypt largely because of their disobedience, but God is going to deliver them out of Egypt through the exodus. Exile and deliverance go hand in hand. The exile that we're reading about in Ezekiel, the Israelites are ultimately going to find deliverance in the cross. And in the cross, we have no better representation of exile than that, right? But it's through the exile of the cross that we find the redemption of our souls, right? Jesus is resurrected. He's delivered. Judgment and grace, exile and deliverance. And deliverance always comes with a return to God. Deliverance always comes with a return to God. Conviction is needed in the lives of the Israelites and is needed in my life and our lives because all of us are on this unfulfilling journey of the self-salvation project. That arrogance that existed in the Israelites exists in me. And if you're human, I think this is part of the human condition that exists in each one of you as well. There's this arrogance, this inflated view of ourselves that we can figure it out ourselves, that we can make things right, that even the things that we've done wrong, we can make right on our, on our own. And there's two ways that this shows up. There's two ways that it's shown up in the lives of the Israelites, and there's two ways that it shows up in my life and likely shows up in your life as well. And the first is what we're reading about in Ezekiel, and that's this idea that we know better than God does. God's constantly reaching out to the Israelites, and the Israelites are saying, you know what, God, we've got this. We're going to do it our own way, Right? And it's the same temptation that the snake like operated with Adam and Eve, right? Surely God didn't say, 
fill in the blank, right? Surely my way is better than God's way, and if God said this, like, surely that's not what he meant anyway. And in our own lives, as we're opening God's word and we're reading it, and we're reading about how we're supposed to live, if at any point we find ourselves, well, surely, thinking, surely that's not what God meant, should hear the echo of the serpent even in our own lives, right? It's the, it's the, the initial deception. Surely God didn't say. Surely God didn't mean. This idea that the Israelites could do it better on their own is what drove them to ask for a king in the first place, right? God said, I will be your God and you will be my people, which is like, Gosh, if God's ruling over you, the goodness of God, why do you need anything more than that? Well, it's because the Israelites thought we can do this better ourselves. And in my own life, I fall into that same temptation, right? God, you are my God, but I've got this corner. Like, I want to be king of this part. It's the same temptation for the Israelites that demanded a king. And as I was reading Ezekiel, I, I was thinking about in our own culture, in our own brokenness, in our own sinfulness, in our own thinking, well, surely that's not what God meant, or our own culture saying, surely we know better than God does. I was thinking, we have taken that so far. We are so broken as a culture that we found a way to make God look bad. We found a way to make it look like, well, God's the bad guy, Right? And so we should be ashamed because we follow God. We're so broken as a culture that God has become the bad guy. Now what's interesting is the Israelites like end up in exile because they felt like we can do this on our own and we know better than God does. And so they go through this horrific ordeal of the exile. And so as we get to the New Testament, we're going to open it up and we're going to read about the other way that we pursue this self-justification project, this self-salvation project. And it's what the Pharisees did, right? If, if disobeying God leads us to exile, we don't want to do that again. And so we are going to take God's moral law and we are going to do everything we can to obey it to the T, and if we do everything that God says as perfect as possible, then God owes us, right? And it's self-justification all over again. It's controlling and manipulating God. It's saying, God, we've got this. In fact, we're living so perfectly that you owe us. We have leverage on you, which is really just another form of idolatry. It's not saying I'm going to follow foreign gods, but I'm going to follow myself as God, and then God, you owe me. So if this is true, then strict adherence to the law and rejection of the law are no different because they're both a form of self-justification. Rejection of God and his law and strict adherence to his law are no different because they're both a form of self-justification and a denial of our need for God. And so if we place our hope in following all the rules or we place our hope in ourselves, that's not hope at all. Because hope that is misplaced is not hope. Misplaced hope is not hope. And that's where this like similarity between what Israel was going through and where I was two years ago and where I still wrestle with are actually exactly the same. I'm trying to do it all on my own. 
I'm pursuing this self-salvation project and ultimately it's going to be unfulfilling and ultimately it's going to lead me and it's going to lead us to this place where we're just completely broken and we cry out, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I know to do and here I am broken. And in that moment, our angry arrogance gives way to this holy humility. You see, for me, I was like trying to do it all and I felt like God owed me something. I thought, I don't know what else to do. I'm living as perfectly and as rightly as I know to live and God, you owe me. And there was anger in the midst of that arrogance, right? But in that moment where I was like, I can't do this anymore, there's this holy moment of humility that begins to play out and I surrender and we surrender and Israel will surrender, crying out, God, we can't do this anymore. And in that moment, that arrogance shifts from like this high, like too high view of ourselves to recognizing who God is. And we develop not this hopelessness, but a confidence, right? Confidence is this feeling that I can rely on someone. And when we come to the end of ourselves and realize I can't rely on myself, it's not doable, I can't figure it out, shift from living a life of arrogance to placing my confidence in God. Arrogance to surrender to confidence. There's a couple of things that I want to highlight as, as we consider this. And the first is that we must be careful not to rush to the second half of Ezekiel too quickly. And we want to get to the hopeful part. We want to get to the promise part. But we must be careful not to rush into that too early. Because there's no recognition of hope without the recognition of the need. There's no recognition of hope without the recognition of the need. There's no hope for renewal until we come to the end of ourselves. Okay, and I know you all can't see this, but you all can. Our vision, our mission, what's driving us as a church is listed right up here. Can you all read that out loud so the other group can hear it? Go for it. For the renewal of all things. If that's our hope, together as a community is the renewal of all things. And there's no renewal until we get to the end of ourselves. Until we get to this place where we confess because we have utterly no choice. God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. That's our hope for this church, for this community, for each one of you. And it may not look like ugly in the middle of the night crying, right? But to get to this place where God, we we can't do this on our own. What, what you're promising to us can't happen because we're doing it. It has to be because you're doing it. We've done everything we know to do. We can't do it anymore. God, would you move in a powerful, powerful way? And this need for God should show up in our presence every Sunday morning. As we walk through the doors, we come empty and broken in utter desperation for a God who's faithful and a God who is good. In our worship, we cry out and worship God 
out of desperation. The best worshipers are those who recognize their need. And so for over the last couple of weeks, and for that matter, in our life together as a community, we've been singing songs like we sang this morning. It's always you, Jesus. I've pursued other things. I've pursued myself, and I always come back to you. It's always you. We sing a song where we, we cry out like, this is what we do when we don't know what else to do. God will lift our hands to you because it's always you, Jesus. We sing, I, I need you. Lord, I need you every hour, every step. God, I need you. It's like desperation. I'm not choosing to say this. I have to say this because I've come to the end of myself. And in our prayers, as we gather on Thursdays or we come up to the altar and we pray, it's this, God, like, I need you. I need, God, I'm here because I need you. And I can't do this on my own any longer. We can't do this on our own any longer. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, which is the story of the prodigal son, and as we're going through the Old Testament, I'm hoping that the story of the prodigal son comes alive to you in new ways, right? Because you've got Israel who says, I'm gonna go off and do things on my own, which is what the younger son and the story of the prodigal son does. And then you've got the other side of that, like, I'm gonna follow your decrees to a T, God, in denial of you is the story of the older son, right? The story of the prodigal son is the story of Israel, in the Old Testament, and in this book, The Prodigal God, which is a great book that you should go out and read, Tim Keller says this. He says, the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. The prerequisite for us receiving the grace of God is to know that we need it. We don't find grace. We don't find hope without recognizing our need for it. So it's okay for us to settle into Lamentations and into Jeremiah and into Ezekiel and to feel the weight of it because it brings up within us that weight that we carry in our own lives, driving us to our need for God. The second thing that I want to highlight because this is a wrestling match for me as well is that when our pain over exile is more tied to our circumstances than our lack of relationship with God, there is repentance that still needs to take place. When our circumstances and and the pain of the circumstances overwhelms us more than our desire for God, then there's repentance that still needs to take place because God's promises, apart from him, aren't his promises. We come to the cross broken and empty and in need, and it's because we come and we meet a God who is faithful and is compassionate and extends mercy to us. So we come on Sunday mornings to the cross and to communion. We come in recognition of our need and our dependence on God, but also our desire for him because it's his kindness that drives us to repentance. God welcomes us back. He's desperately waiting for us to return to him. And so as we come to communion this morning, we come with our hands like this. And I don't know if you've thought about this before, but 
We come with our hands empty. We're not holding anything, which means that we've had to, we've had to let go. Right? We've had to open our hands, and we put them together, and we come needy, right? Asking God to fill it for his body broken for us and his blood shed for us because we desperately need it, and we come with nothing. We come to God with nothing, and he meets us right there. And so as we come to communion this morning, we come to his table that he invites us to, not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. I wonder, as you come holding your hands open, what is that thing that you've been holding on to, trying to figure it out on your own? But what is that piece in your life where you're pursuing the self-salvation project that you're beginning to learn is going to ultimately be unfulfilling? It's going to leave you broken and in need of him. What's that thing that you're holding on to that you haven't been able to let go of? What's that place where you're feeling stuck but maybe you're not even able to admit it to yourself yet? Feeling stuck and you're thinking, I, I've got this. I can still figure it out. I'm fine. What is, what's that place where you haven't even been able to admit to yourself yet? I'm stuck. Maybe this morning as we come to community, the, the arrogance that we have and the anger maybe that we have, because God, I've been, I've been doing all the right things. Why are things still messed up? That maybe that arrogance and that anger can give way to this holy humility where you recognize I come empty-handed. God meets me right here in the midst of my nothingness. I don't know what else to do. God, I've done everything I know to do. And it may feel like a hopeless moment for you. Two years ago, I look back, and it's like I don't necessarily think of that moment as hopeful, but it was like one of the most hopeful moments in me over the last two years because I confessed I can't do it anymore. In the midst of that need, I began to recognize my hope. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to move forward, but God, I come, surrendered to you, confessing that you are good, and you are compassionate, and you are mercy, and I need you. Let's pray together. Father, I confess this morning that I think back to that night, and Lord, I, I, oftentimes it's difficult for me to think of that as a hopeful night, and yet, God, that's the night where, like, in some ways, you drove me to the knees of my heart. And Father, while it wasn't like an overnight turn, and Father, in many ways, these are still lessons that I'm learning, that that was the, the beginning of that hopeful journey, God, where I began letting go and pursuing you. And so, Father, this morning, and it may be in a very uncomfortable, painful way for some of us, God, I hope that you would poke our hearts you point out those places that maybe we've been living in denial of, thinking, I've got this. And at the same time, God, knowing this is about to break open in ways that are far beyond my control, God, that you would poke those and invite us to confess those to you, to bring them empty-handed, confessing, God, I need you. I don't know what else to do. And God, that in our humility, that you would meet us there, not just your promises, but you yourself, that we would not just, God, ask that you would change the circumstances around us, but that you would begin changing our hearts because, God, we desire you 
If nothing else, God, we desire you. Father, we thank you for the invitation of the Last Supper, the invitation of communion. God, that you call us to you, not because we deserve it, but because, God, you know that we're weary, that we're broken down from trying to do it on our own. And, God, that we need rest that only comes from you. God, may you meet us in that this morning.